Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is supported by Golden Artist Colors, manufacturing in upstate New York, Golden Acrylics, Williamsburg Oils, and more recently, Core Watercolors, an employee-owned company committed to producing the highest quality materials while maintaining a culture of stewardship and community involvement. I've been using Golden for over 20 years, and I swear by it. For more information about Golden Artist Colors, visit them online at goldenpaints.com. Alexandria Smith is a mixed-media visual artist based in London and New York. She earned her BFA in illustration from Syracuse University and her MA in art education from New York University and her MFA in fine arts from Parsons, the new school for design. She is the recipient of numerous awards, including the 2018-2019 Queens Museum Jerome Foundation Fellowship, a Paula Krasner Grant, the Skowhegan School of Painting and Sculpture Fellowship, the Virginia A. Myers Fellowship at the University of Iowa, and the Fine Arts Work Center Fellowship. She's been awarded residencies including McDowell, Bemis, Yaddo, and LMCC Process Space. Alexandria's recent exhibitions include her first solo museum exhibit, Monuments to an Effigy, at the Queens Museum in New York City, a solo exhibition in Praise of Shadows at Anna Zarina Gallery in New York City, a site-specific commission for the De Cordova Biennial at the De Cordova Sculpture Park and Museum, and a site-specific commission for the Davis Museum at Wesley College. She was also included in a major painting survey exhibition at Mass Mocha entitled The Lure of the Dark, Contemporary Painters Conjure the Night. She's currently the Chair of Painting at the Royal College of Art in London. I spoke with Alexandria from London about art making, quarantine, adjusting to England, teaching, music, and much more. Here's our conversation. It's so funny. I've been trying to figure out a way to to sort of surpass that or to change it when I give my own talks. Yeah. Because I'm like, I'm bored with talking about the same stuff and I don't like this chronological approach to talking about my work. So I don't I haven't figured it out yet, but yeah. it's definitely something I need to figure out long before I have like a, a lecture to give because I always find like <laughs> There's so much time that's, you know, everything else requires time. And suddenly the lecture is like in two days. And so I revert to the comfort, you know, comfort zone. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like someone did that at some point and they said, you know, everyone was like, this is just going to be the way people do it. And for some reason, like 90% of people just, you know, adhere to that chronological slide, you know, thing. Yeah. Yeah, Which is interesting, but it gets boring. What do you do? It does. I mean, I try, I inject like moving stuff like animation and you know video stuff and and I don't make it too chronological I kind of make it theme based of where I'll talk about my work and talk about music and then podcasting like Mm -hmm. all that stuff so I just try to like make it a little more fun and less here look at my artwork you know yeah (laughs) 
Which is it's weird a, because do you feel weird about that too? Like, like pay attention I, to me for two hours. You know? Yeah, I really do. I mean, as artists, I think we love that sort of attention, but I don't think I like, I like the work to have that attention, but I don't like me, right. like myself to have that attention. So yeah. it feels, I mean, for lack of a better word, it just feels so masturbatory. Totally. And strange. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like, yeah. I don't think I want to do that. So a thematic approach is definitely... Um, something i've been thinking about so it's good to know that you do that i might have to do some googling of your talks to find some oh, <laughs> amy Soman does it <laughs> oh yeah she well she does on color on yeah. shape you know yeah i like so. when artists do bring in other people's work i don't know it's it's weird because we do spend all our time working on our stuff you yeah. know what i mean and if you're yeah. the kind of artist that never collaborates it's just all you mm-hmm. it's even harder i think because how do you not make that talk kind of about you if that's that's all you do and even if you're not that into what you're doing you know like it being about you but you're about the work i mean part of the you know i kind of bumped into doing podcasts like i I wasn't i never would have thought this is something i'm gonna do Mm -hmm. you know it just came up organically you know but Mm -hmm. it's been so great because i spend so much of my time talking about other people's work instead of my own which which is is (laughs) refreshing yeah i'm sure it is it's very refreshing. So, and real quick before, you know, we get into it, get into it, but you went to, you got a illustration degree at Syracuse. I did, yeah. I had my BFA in illustration from My Cuse. wife did, too. She, My wife was there, I think she graduated, I was thinking about it today, I think she graduated in probably like 98 with an uh, illust- illustration okay. degree. I was there 99 to 03. Yeah. So, I met, we missed each other <laughs> because it's a small department. So, right. yeah, I wasn't there at the same time as her. So, but yeah, it was, um, I thought I wanted to be in, I mean, I wanted to be a character designer and animator. Yeah. Like I studied, you know, we didn't have an animation program at Syracuse, but I was an intern in an animation studio, like Animotions, I think is what it was called. Uh-huh. That was nearby. And I took a class and I made a cartoon and all mm-hmm. that stuff. And, I was kind of thinking I'd have a career similar to Peter Deceve or Deceive, mm-hmm. who who does all the character design for like Ice Age and all these all these amazing animated films. Yeah. And um, then I graduated and was like, yeah, I don't like other people telling me what to make. <laughs> so that's, that's the rub. <laughs> illustration is not going to be for me. <laughs> I know it's so but, hard, right? Like artists uh, who want to do design or, or anything else is basically just following someone else's directive and that's yeah. if you if you have your vision that's really hard to do i mean some it people is. are really good at sque- squeezing in their you know vision into that stuff mm-hmm. but it's um it's hard when people are like eh, i don't really like that i want you to do you know something like this yeah definitely i mean i think there's some illustrators that i definitely love and admire that have a, a career that i could see myself having yeah but um like Kadir Nelson, he does, I mean, amazing covers and for like the New Yorker and his children's books and all that. And he kind of has developed, I mean, he's a Caldecott award winner and all that. Yeah. So he's gotten to a point where I think he's been able to establish himself as um, as an incredible visionary and people kind of let him do, I'd like to think, let him do whatever he wants, but yeah. who knows what happens behind the scenes, you know? Right. Well, did you, did that come from when you were growing up? Were you really into like cartoons or animation? Yeah. I mean, I've wanted to be an artist since I, my mom said, since I could mumble words at three, I was saying I'm an artist. And so I wanted, I went, I grew up in New York. So I was born, born in the Bronx. We, I lived there until I was about seven and raised in New Rochelle. 
and my adult life was spent in Brooklyn. Nice. In Bed-Stuy. So, yeah. So, yeah, I always wanted to be um, an animator, comic book illustrator. I illustrated and wrote my own children's books growing up. That was always my thing. Yeah. Did you ever have... This is a weird question, but... (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever go to... I don't know if they had them when, you know, when you were getting ready to go to college, but those portfolio days that they do in the city? Yeah, you know, I didn't go to them when I was... um, going to my my bachelor's degree but i did go to them when i was going for my mfa yeah so yeah i I teach at at penn state and we i'm always there every year for those portfolio days and it's so cool to see all these kids in the city or in the tri-state area Mm -hmm. come out for that because like right before it starts and they let all the kids come down there's like hundreds and hundreds and maybe thousands of kids and you're like oh yeah people still like art this is cool (laughs) Yeah, and we still need to like engage in that way and not look at art only on a screen. Right, it's pretty interesting now. now. (laughs) (laughs) It's like that's a tough sell at the moment. Although uh, things are starting to, people are starting to go out. I guess I don't know. I've been in pretty strict quarantine, but you know, some people are. I know. I've been as well. My wife and I have like hunkered down because you know we're both from the state, so. We were ahead of the ahead of the game here. Yeah. Like we knew it was coming, so we already were quarantining ourselves like a week or so, week and a half before it the the directive came down from the UK government. Yeah. So, but um, yeah, and I I have asthma, so I'm like, ugh, let me. Yeah, we got to be careful. It's <laughs> tough, right? And doesn't that frustrate? Like, because I have family, like you know, direct family who are super at risk. And then when you see people going around without, and they're, you know, that in the American thing, as you know, like that whole freedom. I don't want to get. get oh my to, goodness! Get people are making it a political, a political protest. It's like, give me a break! You are incredibly selfish and don't care about other people. Right. Nor is anyone destruct indestructible. So it's just incredibly asinine. Yeah, it's this weird <laughs> like freedom, you know. Uh, you know like I'm free to not wear a mask and these are the same people who are like not to generalize but a lot of them are the same people who are like pro gun rights and like I want to defend myself yeah so they want like 40 guns in their house to protect them from this you know phantom Mm -hmm. thing that's going to come attack them but they won't protect themselves with a mask or people around them. It's just the so backwards. It. Yeah. It's so ironic. Yeah, I mean that's it's it's sad and it's um it's really it's pitiful. Yeah. But yeah, it's like we don't know when we're going to uh, be able to go visit our parents because we don't want to jump on a plane. Right. Then we have to quarantine for two weeks. We can't just go and stay with them. I don't want to endanger their lives yeah. or ours by going getting on a plane right now because I'm hearing mumblings of airlines saying that they're implementing social distancing but actually packing flights in. Oh, yeah. Well, and it's a flight. Like, my wife had to fly for work to Miami, mm-hmm. of all places. Oh, She's geez. there now. Oh, that's awful. Her job made her go, and, you know, it's... The planes aren't as crowded as they normally are, but it's a plane. You're out. The air is circulating. (laughs) Like, I don't think that HEPA filter's that strong, you know? No, it's not. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's it's super stressful. So she's going to have to quarantine two weeks when she gets, or we're going to have to leave for two weeks so she can quarantine. That's tricky. How are you going to do that? uh, Go to the parents. Not ideal. You know, it's it's really difficult. But the thing is so frustrating 
man, I don't, I didn't want to start this off with a rant. <laughs> the thing that's frustrating is like everyone's rushing back to to try to like rush back to normal without, you know, I mean, it's just like there's a lot of people at risk here, but it's like well, a lot of econ- people have died. Yeah, economy, we got to keep it going, and it's like. Well, if you do it the right way, like there's places where they do it the right way and they're able to still go out because everyone yeah. is very cautious and considerate. Most of those, yeah, most of those places have leaders that are uh, are women too. Right. <laughs> those countries, yeah, totally <laughs> makes you think. I know. Well, <laughs> hope, well, maybe maybe we'll have a vice president who's a woman who probably will inevitably have to take over at some point. Let's hope. Let's hope there's a. Hope there's hope in the future. <laughs> hope for hope. There is, you know, and I, I was thinking about that yesterday after binge watching The Daily Show for a few hours. And I was <laughs> thinking about hope, you know, and how there's kind of like I and I've been saying it when I talk to people on the podcast, like I feel hopeful. But then there's like a little bit of guilt with that because I feel like who am I to feel hopeful because there's a mm. lot. It's different for me, but I am hopeful. You know what I mean? I yeah. do want yeah things for this moment to be something that that changes uh there's significant lasting change and something more Mm -hmm. than just you know social media and something that's institutional and i mean there are some things that are changing but right now it feels very symbolic and what really needs to change is the systems the system the system because people's attitudes i'm sure you know it's like people are going to have their attitude they're going to have their viewpoints you know what i mean it's going to be hard to convert someone who grew up somewhere where they're not exposed to diversity and not exposed to diversity of thought and it's just mm-hmm. going to be ingrained in them and you hope maybe generation generationally that dies off at some point or something but it's you know but systemically and institutionally like that kind of change really needs to happen and that yeah. you know that's just it's so daunting i was talking to someone about you just our government process and how ingrained that stuff is it's almost like un- it's it's very unconscious in a way. It's just so ingrained into our structure that mm-hmm. you know it's really going to take some real work to change that and yeah. dedication by people. Yeah, I agree. How's I London? Agree. <laughs> London has been interesting. It's it's some things, not as much. I think. It's tricky because London is was one way pre pre COVID. So London, I was saying, was like two different places right now <laughs> for yeah. me. I mean, when I first arrived, it was it was great. It was exciting. It was also incredibly overwhelming because there's a lot of adjustments culturally to make. Yeah. Um, language they're speaking, excuse me, English, but sometimes depending on where they're from, I struggle to understand because yeah. of the accents, because of the <laughs> you know, it just sounds different. Yeah. So and then I was traveling a lot in the first half of the year when I first got here. And now we're on lockdown. So I've enjoyed it so far. I think that uh, the conditions pre and post COVID are <laughs> it's gonna be a different experience. But yeah. I definitely have enjoyed being here, um, overall. Yeah, so it's funny because some people have traveled. I know they, whenever this thing started getting serious, a lot of friends who were, you know, New Yorkers, they were just like, I'm out. I'm, I'm going Airbnb for three months, whatever it is. They're yeah. just getting out of the city because they had this fear that it was going to be like, I am legend or something. Yeah. At the yeah. end of this. So, but then when I talk to them, they're just like, yeah, I'm just here. I mean, they have a yard usually or some, 
some land, but basically yeah. they're just indoor. Like everyone's just indoors, so mm-hmm. it's kind of similar in a way. It is. So it's like I feel, I feel like a stranger in a foreign land, but at the same time, everyone's experiencing this, so right. it doesn't feel as foreign. But it is hard to be here, um, you know, and all of my friends, all the people that I care about are in the states and fighting for our rights. Yeah. And I feel like. I'm trying to figure out how to do that here and what that looks like because it looks different. I mean, I have the ways I can fight within the institution and fight for our rights as artists and and professors and students. But I also, it's just, I'm not used to being in in the indoors. (laughs) I'm used to being in the streets or trying to be in the streets as much as possible when I, when it was feasible um, and protesting and things like that. But we all have our lanes that, are important to to focus on and I'm just trying to make sense of what that lane is and right. figure out uh put in place an action plan. But I think that lane that you're in and that you're talking about is an important one because it is really important to be on the streets and that kind of, you know, forcing that kind of change in consciousness through action that way, mm-hmm. but that other lane is important too. And I think yeah. sometimes that's neglected, you know what I mean? And nothing puts you in that lane faster than a quarantine. And if you're at risk, you know, it's probably good that you're not out with like. I mean, I did sneak out the- a couple times, but. <laughs> <laughs> Safely. Safely with masks and, you know, hand sanitizer. But um, thank goodness I'm okay. It yeah. was a risk. I did sneak out. I told my brother not to tell my mom. Or my dad, you know, right. I was like, I'm no, going, we're know. going out here, but don't tell mom and dad until I'm back. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, I knew I'd hear it. <laughs> what about, um, how has art making shift since you moved? I mean, you're seeing a corner of a drawing. I mean, I didn't, because of where my studio is, it's about five miles from our flat. And, yeah. um, it would require public transportation. We did get bikes eventually, so we've had our bikes now for a couple of weeks. But I went to the studio one last time, the Sunday before the Monday directive came down to not shelter in place because I had a feeling. And because it's a nonprofit that runs the building, I was worried that they would shut down the building. They didn't actually have to, um, but I couldn't really get to the studio. I didn't want to be out and right. tra- you know traveling to the studio being a building of you know 20 plus studio built spaces it just didn't you know, take public transportation it just wasn't smart so I brought material back here and I ended up just making a lot of drawings I mean for yeah. me drawing has always been um sort of my my comfort zone in many ways it's been yeah. the space where I feel like it's most closely um emulates what I'm thinking about like I'm able to go from thought to direct action and it feels most personal most uh intuitive and vulnerable for me outside of painting uh and so I've just been making drawings pastel drawings large scale I made a a lot of small drawings using markers colored pencils and just incorporating different dry media that I really wasn't using before yeah um and I made generative right it is really generative do you feel like the idea? I mean, I've I've been working at home on paper now for you know months, mm-hmm. and I'm so excited to go back to the studio proper because I feel like the ideas now. That's where I get all the ideas. You know, it's same. Like, it's it's really I guess in a way it's good. It makes it's going to make me really appreciate getting back into the studio full steam, yeah. and also it's good because it forces you to kind of slow down. I think that's what. 
this has been good. It's hard to say a lot of goods come out of a global pandemic, but it is mm-hmm. in a way it's forced everyone to slow down a little bit. Yeah. You know, yeah. like those map weather maps of the world where like pollution has dropped and stuff, you know, it feels it's amazing. like that's good, like for everyone to just pause a little bit, yeah. think about things, you know? Yeah. I mean, I noticed that the weather, it was beautiful and sunny the first month and a half, two months of quarantining. And then when they started opening things up a little bit, people started getting antsy. Then it was raining. Yeah. Raining for a full three days. You know, London is known for rain, but I feel like I've been spoiled because it really wasn't raining much at all or overcast much this entire quarantine. So it felt like the world was healing and it was also laughing in our faces like it's your fault because it is, right? right? right. Totally. (laughs) Now, look, you can't even get out to enjoy it. but. Um, drawing has yeah, been really generative. I guess I'm trying to figure out what next, right? Because I think I've always had to wrestle with this idea of like how to, my drawing's not feeling like enough, but my drawing's always eliciting the the most um, sort of powerful, exciting responses from viewers. Yeah. People always refer to my drawings or my collage, my smaller collages, <clears throat> excuse me. And I mean, they, to be fair, they do refer to my paintings, but there's an energy in my drawings that just isn't in my paintings. And I'm now trying to figure out, okay, what does that look like when I go back into the studio? Am I going to make just continue making drawings? Because I love painting. I love the materiality of painting. But I think I've been battling with how to bring these two together since grad school. And I still haven't figured it out. And now I'm how many years out of grad school? Um, Ten? Yeah. Time flies. So. <laughs> Yeah, it's figuring crazy. that it's it's tough because I, that's the same exact thing I have because I do collages as my drawings basically, mm-hmm. and there's a real physicality to them, and I think people love that. They love yeah. sort of seeing that hand stuff in there, where the paintings are a little more, you know, polished or flat or you know mm-hmm. not quite so three D in a way. Yeah. And um, but there's something like you're saying. There's something about painting that's just I don't maybe it gives more as a painter. <laughs> Then the the viewer at times, you know what I mean? Where you, the process of it feels so nice and there's something really intimate about the process. Whereas, you know, drawings and work on paper just has a built in intimacy to it because of the directness of that mark. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe it's not about their being, it doesn't need to just all sort of mold into one. Yeah. But I do want my drawings to have a, a greater visibility and be as respected as a product, right? Because the, the, I think the, the way that people respect paintings as an object are not respected as much as drawings as objects are yeah. respected. I think they are more so now than before, but there's something about work on paper versus work on canvas that elevates, the work on canvas is always elevated or the work right. on panel. I mean, there's so many artists that have done that, though, right? That have ele- elevated the medium of drawing and are committed to it. Like Toyin Oji Odutola, who's amazing. Yeah. I love her work. She has. Like, she's created a, carved out a space for, for, for us drawers, our drafts people, us drafts people out there. Yeah. That it is as important, if not more important, than painting. And it should be respected as such. Totally. Um, yeah. I, but I think a lot of times the, those artists... Well, maybe not, but if, it feels like a lot of times they have to just commit to paper because if they start doing paper and paintings, that weird kind of like hierarchical thing that just painting is more, you know, which is 
BS, really, the idea that pain is more important. But, I mean, that's economical, and I think that's more market or whatever or institutional. But Definitely. um, Like, I'll do small pieces on paper that Mm -hmm. take twice as long as a bigger piece on on canvas. Yeah, yeah. No one cares. I mean, no, no one does (laughs) because it's on paper. The price tag is going to be, you know, it's weird. It's like that, that hierarchy. And I wonder if it's the hierarchy can be sort of phased out if you're drawing on a, su- a surface and you're calling it a painting. Like you're drawing, instead of drawing on paper, I mean, even uh, Fidelie Baez, she's also elevated the medium of drawing, but she's also very much a painter too. Yeah. But totally. you look at her work on canvas, she's also drawing. I mean, right. she's drawing with a brush. So, I, and it, but it's, is it about the final, the object being on this final surface that makes it, that enables it to be elevated? Is it about it being a drawing on canvas that's just called a painting, but ultimately it's a drawing? Right. Like, I wonder, I wonder what, if that's it, or if it matters, or if it's what you come out of the gate making. Because... Yeah. I came out of the gate making paintings, but to to the you know complete strangers. But I actually, the paintings can't exist without the drawings, and it's always started with some sort of drawing, whether it's a little doodle or a scratch on a napkin or margins of my notebook when I'm in like a staff meeting, right, right. <laughs> or if it's fully fleshed out and it's like full color in my sketchbook proper, you know. Yeah, I remember one of the first trips I made to New York City when I was an art student, like in the early '90s. There was. Um, four shows that I saw that were so like testing those waters mm-hmm. was um, Ellen Gallagher, which was totally collage and drawing on canvas. You know, I guess it's painting, quote unquote, but it was it was draw. It felt like drawing or collage. Yeah. And then uh, Larry Pittman, which I was like, mm. what is this? <laughs> you know what I mean? I couldn't yeah. even figure out how that was done. And then um, there was Toba Kadori, and then Carol Dunham's uh, paintings with the styrofoam balls on the canvas, which like blew my mind. And it was just like, oh wow, you can do all this stuff, you know? Yeah. But um, well, so with the work you're doing, you do all sorts of work, though. I mean, you do painting, you do collage, you do, do you sculpture too. I mean, well, yeah. installations. I mean, how does that play into your process? All that stuff. Sorry, my sink is making noise. I don't know if you can hear that. (laughs) Um, How does that play into my process? I think they're interchangeable. I don't look at them. It is one uh, sort of, it's one consistent stream of thought. Um, I'm not thinking, okay, I'm going to make an installation. I'm going to make a drawing. Because thematically and conceptually, the works are all intermingled. They're exploring similar ideas, similar concepts. It's just... For me, it's what the image, I try to listen to the image and it sounds so like, I don't know. It's, it's, it is a spiritual experience for me, the way that I make work. And I think that I try to remain um, connected to listening to the work itself. Yeah. So like, I, I mean, it depends also on, on like what I'm trying to put forth I like my work to in, engage with the environment and the viewer or be more of a space for the viewer. And I think that's where my interest in, led to me making the installation at the Queens Museum yeah. was because I, I wanted to, to finally have, I finally had an opportunity to fully encompass the viewer and immerse, immerse the viewer in the space, the worlds that I create on a two-dimensional surface. And that's always been my goal. I just didn't always have the resources. Right. Um, so I, it's really about the material. It's like, what do I physically, spiritually feel like I need right now? Um, 
in the, the large drawings that I, the large paintings that I made, uh, my last big body of work that I showed um, at BU, which then, and then I showed at um, Anna's Arena Gallery this past fall, I was trying to figure out a way to bring the collages um, back into the painting realm. And that for me, I started with scales. Like, okay, I haven't made big work and I want to physically engage my body the way that I do when I'm making prints. You know, when I'm engaged in printmaking, how can I do that on a larger scale? Um, Like with painting. And I was like, okay, go bigger so that my whole body has to get involved. And the physicality of the work was was integral uh, to my process at the time. And that's, it just kind of takes on from there. And sometimes like these drawings, I just felt more isolated Right, we're on lockdown, and I felt like I, I wanted the, the mark to be in my thought process to be um, sort of directly translate to the surface, and so drawing just seemed like an easy area to revert back to because painting is hard for me. Yeah, I struggle with painting honestly. You and me both. <laughs> it's a yeah. It's like it's a love hate relationship. I love painting, and there's some painters out there who are incredible. And I'm just like, man, I wish I could paint like you. Like, I wish I had the control of the medium the way that some of these artists that I admire do. And it's just not, it just, it's something I always struggle with. Yeah. And so drawing for me is my, the area where I can safely experiment, right? Because I maintain a certain level of control, a certain amount of control, but I can still experiment when I'm right. drawing. Yeah, yeah. As far as like conceptual side of things, um, you know, the show, you had that show called In Praise of Shadows, mm-hmm. which is a really great book. Yeah, and, it is. Um, <laughs> I had to reread it for it. Yeah, Tanazaki. What, so the relation, I think I, I could go there in my own mind, looking at the work and having read the book and thinking about that. But can you just talk about that as a, as a sort of relational idea and how you sort of translated that into your mm-hmm. conceptual medium? Yeah, you know, sometimes I pull titles because the title itself takes on a different meaning than maybe the book did. Um, Excuse me. And I think in Praise of Shadows, I'm still having now been six months removed from it. I think it's still a concept that I'm I'm fleshing out even more. Mm -hmm. You know, the paintings I was making before that were about dualism, dualities, the self, the ego, the reflection or mirror image. And it still became, it still was about that, but I've always been thinking about um, the idea of the shadow as another character. And then there was like, there was a video of a little girl that was trying to get away from her shadow, a little like two or three year old, it was the cutest thing, but she was terrified of her shadow. I saw that, Um, yeah. Yeah, it was like, and it was amazing. Um, And then thinking about like um, The Icarus Girl by Helen Oyuyemi, who's, uh, it's one of my favorite books. Mm -hmm. There was this, this, twin figure this shadow creature or figure that's uh has a completely different persona than the little girl than the young lady that is attached to her i think she was probably 12 or so so it's like all these different ideas that have been in my um sort of in my purview for a long time you know i was making smaller drawings about this character named marjorie and she had a shadow that was was her but wasn't her it just came it all came back because i guess at the time, I really was really looking inward. I yeah. was trying to figure out, okay, I had these um, huge transitions that were about to happen. I was about to move here to London and take on a role that's bigger than any role I've ever had <laughs> in my life. That intimidation, thinking about like imposter syndrome, just really looking 
inward and thinking about who am I and what is it that I want to do with the platforms that I have available to me? What do I want to say? Um, yeah. How vulnerable can I be? Um, and then just thinking also about like my dad, like my dad is legally blind now um, in the past maybe five or so years and he sees shadows like he's he can't really actually see the work that i make but he can feel it he can sense it he can see the shadows of someone coming nearby but not actually see the full form of the person yeah. and i just wanted to dive into that um with that body of work and i don't think that i'm done by any means or if i even figured it out in that body of work um so it's like all those ideas that have been sort of on my mind for years sort of rose to the surface <laughs> yeah. on the cusp of all these huge changes in my life happening. Um, yeah. Titles are amazing, I think, and, and sometimes underappreciated as to like what you're talking about, that sort of how it can relate to the idea and then relate to whatever it's referencing. There's like mm-hmm. this triangulation that goes on. I had a long like history of naming shows after jazz record titles, oh, you know, it's great. Like the future is now and you know, um, space is a place, things like that. That, mm-hmm. that, so there's like this triangulation between the reference to it and then what it means and then what it means in relation to the work. Mm-hmm. It's such a fun, like way to add. Uh, yeah like texture to the the conceptual side of the work I think definitely I like to use titles to to be as ambiguous I don't use titles to hint at anything specific they end up further complicating the narrative I think yeah. or at least I try to I try to use titles as like um that's my trickster like right. element thrown in there like right. how can I gonna mess with your head a little bit more <laughs> right right it's like cover art that's totally different aesthetic than the music you know exactly like, what what's going on here mm-hmm. speaking of which I, I wanted to ask you i'm you're a fan of music correct huge yeah it's like asking like you like air <laughs> right <laughs> i'm also no. married to a musician so i'm kind oh, okay. of yeah what is what what's her um uh, liz liz gray she's an amazing uh composer Musician. Mm-hmm. She also plays a vocalist, plays the piano, guitar. She um, composed the the original composition. She made the original composition. I'm still getting music terminology right, by the way. <laughs> She's not here to hear me and correct me, but <laughs> <laughs> she um, she created the original composition for my show at the Queens Museum. Oh, nice. That was a lot of original music. Um, so yeah, it's it's. I'm now tied to it forever. <laughs> did you grow? Up, did you grow up hearing a lot of music? Yeah, my dad every Sunday. I mean, he has an extensive record collection, but he would quiz me on stuff too. Yeah. He would quiz me on like um, parts of New York, like mm-hmm. bridges and bodies of water, and he would quiz me on music because that was his. That's his thing. Like all the records you could think of every Sunday, blasting it uh, from morning until you know. My mom would yell at him to turn it down because the kids are getting ready for. They're in bed and getting ready for school the next day, <laughs> so <it> was, <laughs> which would happen like it eleven. <laughs> reserved for once a week. I mean, like... he he was always listening to music anyway, but he worked. He was um, my dad's a doctor, so he worked a lot. Yeah. So Sundays were like his day to just, yeah. you know, educate us right. and let us like hear all the music. So I know all the old school to the new school. Um, yeah, was it funk. super diverse? Like what he was into? I mean, mostly like funk, R and B. Um, soul music was his thing yeah uh, yeah are we talking like sorry i can talk about music forever are we talking like golden era funk like george clinton yeah yeah 
Yeah, George Clinton, he would throw in, I mean, uh, Pat Bennett, not Pat Bennett, Benatar, um, what's her name? Uh, Patti LaBelle was my mom's favorite, actually. But it was like, yeah, George Clinton, he had, of course, Michael Jackson. Jeez, yeah. I can't even, jazz, he introduced me to jazz, so Miles Davis, um, and a lot, of course, Stevie. Yeah. I think the first sort of, um, he would make copies of it because he had a whole stereo system. He'd make copies of certain albums for me and send them to me on tape, you know, cassette. And actually the one, the cassette I still have to this day, I have to tell him about that actually, <laughs> is um, Evitt's, uh, Evitt's Red Now, which is actually Stevie Wonder Backwards, but it's his only, harmonica only uh, album. Oh, wow. It's I actually on Spotify. That. Yeah, yeah. It's on Spotify, but I'll yeah, I still out. have that 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 tape recording yeah, <laughs> that yeah. he made. <laughs> but yeah, jazz he would definitely um, jazz was the like was his his the favorite thing. I think genre. Yeah, it's funny like how I don't know if this was this happened with you, but like when I was growing up, my dad was really into Motown because he was in the military and they listened to a lot of Motown. Oh, so yeah. he brought that back. So I kind of grew up with like Temptations and Marvin Gaye and all that stuff mm-hmm. in the house all the time. But then I think that opened up a door that I didn't go into that hallway until like later on of yeah. of kind of like funk and disco and, you know, jazz and all that stuff. I, I kind of came to that a little later. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was a little bit of funk, but I remember like certain music lining up with certain activities in your life. And we used to always go roller skating and uh. funk. The DJ at the roller skating rink always played like nothing but funk. So it was like One Way and like Midnight Star and stuff like that, <laughs> that just like to this day, I still love it because it reminds yeah. me of being a kid, you know, it's like these music can like link up to certain environments and certain activities in a way that's, it becomes really nostalgic, I think. Definitely, definitely. That I think and it's probably tricky for people who didn't like grow up. I think it maybe is an acquired taste if you don't have that relationship. Like disco mm. for me was tough. It took me until, you know, I started to really appreciate music to to get into disco and now I yeah know. and i'm still not quite fully into disco i mean he wasn't playing a lot of that growing up so it's there's some tracks that like cross over disco um well michael jackson soul. i mean he had you know quincy did some disco he stuff. did yeah. yeah so i've listened to it but i don't know if i'd say like that is the genre that i gravitate towards it's definitely like soul and uh soul r&b you know yeah. and um and and uh, jazz, right? Because I mean, he introduced me. My dad introduced me to to Prince, but I didn't appreciate Prince until later in life, right? And now I'm like, you know, I've got a Prince tattoo, and realize <laughs> that we had the same birthday, and I'm still learning about Prince because there's so much music out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's funny <laughs> too know? how like sometimes those geniuses can sneak through the tr- the cracks. Like, do you ever find an artist? From like, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. And you're like, whoa, that's amazing. Like, I never saw that work before. Yeah, I'm sure I have. I can't think of any off the top of my head, but I'm sure I have. Definitely. I mean, there's some that I just go back to every time. Yeah. No matter what. I mean, Prince and Janet Jackson, definitely. Right. But see, I wonder if you would even, if Prince would be Prince if it weren't for disco. You know what I mean? Would you have like Saturday Love without my piano? I don't know. I mean, yeah, that's a it's question, like, right? Because it all kind of like feeds into the, the next thing, you know? It did. And he was, I mean, he's sort of the, I think he is like the the epitome of an interdisciplinary artist. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like he was in every, I mean, 
he broke the boundaries of what a genre is, you know. He pushed through that so that you couldn't really classify him. And if you tried to, guess what? That next album is going to, it's just going to completely <laughs> change the game. Right. You don't even know. He was, so, he was just so far ahead of his time. He's amazing. Um, I want to make a, an album. I want to make a body of work about the Rainbow Children because that is actually one of my favorite Prince albums. And I think it's the one album that is under underappreciated. Yeah. And what a great title. It's perfect. La- layers. <laughs> so many layers. Yeah. Yeah, Miles yeah. Davis is like that too because when I started getting into jazz and, and you know, he was one of those, like, um, I used to hate Picasso when I was younger. I just didn't get <laughs> it. And then at a certain point I was kind of like, wait, he did kind of, he, he opened some doors through the work. Like it, he it was did. always changing. And that was kind of like Miles Davis was like always inventing, doing something yeah. new. Yeah. Yeah, I appreciate Miles later. A bitch's brew, I definitely didn't appreciate until much later. Because I was like, "What is this?" It's it's kind of an experimental jazz album. Yeah, in the way that it's constructed and it's incredibly intuitive and like um, improvisational. And I just was like, "What is this? This is weird." And uh, now, I probably like bitch's brew as much, if not more, than I like kind of blue. Right. Because I mean, kind of blue is like the classic. classic yeah, I mean, Miles. it's pretty. I mean. So what is probably one of the best songs of all time. But yeah. yeah, I remember the first time I heard on the corner and I was like, this whole record is one beat. Like it's like, it's amazing. Yeah. It's and, amazing. But, and I didn't really get it at first, but yeah, you know, that's what's, I, I feel like, um, that's, what's great about art is you just have to be willing to like look into it a little deeper than just mm-hmm. walking into a gallery and saying like, oh, I don't like how that looks and walking out, you know? Exactly. And I think as you, get into something longer you kind of get that appreciation for it mm-hmm. you know yeah definitely it's i mean you also become jaded by the art world and the art world has rejected and i think made it um inaccessible for every and anybody to want to be or feel comfortable accessing art i think that's the biggest issue is that the institutions and the way the system is is constructed doesn't welcome everyone yeah totally so well that's but that's it's kind of it's funny because the gallery world, like what you're talking about with the gallery world and that in infrastructure is mm-hmm. not dissimilar to the record industry and the it's music not. industry, but it's just a lot easier for musicians to get their work up there now. You know, it used to be like yeah. that back in the day where, you know, you own, people only heard your record if you were on a big record label and there was distro, you know, like you wouldn't hear it. Yeah. Now you can hear anything from anyone. And maybe that's a little bit of what's happening with, you know, art being visible on Instagram or, you know, but they, I think the infrastructure of it is a little different. Plus art is a little different because it's, you know, it's a language that's so conditional and so interactive on other languages within it that have been laid down. Whereas I think music is much more direct. It is. I mean, art is experiential in a different way than music is. It makes it a little bit more difficult to access it more widely. Right. Unless we start like now, everyone suddenly become much more accessible. We're all right. sheltered in place. And yeah. I think it's broken some boundaries in that regard too, for the better. But I, I worry that that certain uh, systems, certain institutions will, f- will try to shift or, or use the fact that this is sort of working, right? Engaging in this way is sort of working as a standard. That's my right. biggest concern, especially when it comes to education. Like this isn't a solution. This is what we're doing, you know, in the interim. To right. try to continue to to reach out and continue to be accessible and continue to educate 
because we have, a, you know, we have a duty to to continue to do so as as educators and artists. But I hope I just don't want it to become standard because this doesn't solve a lot of the problems that exist um, and uh, the inequities that exist. It doesn't solve that. Well, how do you see that playing out as a result of the current condition in the art world? What is your worry? My worry is that there will be programs um, in place that provide education online only or where online and online provision is actually goes in tandem with a physical, you know, in-person engagement Yeah, as if that is a standard that can be pushed forward and institutions, academic institutions have a corporate mindset. Yeah. Right. Because, I mean, the government isn't supporting the arts in the way that it was decades ago, centuries ago. So, um, well, not centuries, decades. Um, <laughs> and so the, the danger is that this will become standard. Um, and suddenly I'll be teaching online and teaching in person. And I, and I really think we have to resist that because that's a way for an, an academic institution to think of, uh, of solving the issue of, of generating uh, more revenue. Right. Well, they were all... To be honest, they were all doing that with online programming. They anyway, were, but in extents. it was to us. It was just not as widespread. Yeah. I mean, those are people that was to make it more affordable, or the right. idea was to make it more affordable for people to get, you know, uh, continuing education, yeah, uh, credits or or learning, but not as a part of the the foundational like. MFA program or right. MA program that wasn't standard, and so now it's being rolled out in such a way that that these people in senior management, higher ups, are not. I, I worry that they're not going to see it as problematic or see all the problems and issues with engaging in this way and only in this way, well, or even engaging partially in this way. Yeah, <laughs> well, as like the area head of our program right now. Um, I've been spending the past few weeks talking to other people in other institutions and also working on a task force at the school about what's going to happen in the fall and this transition. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that the professors that I speak to, most of them want remote for now until this is better because there were, because a lot of them are at risk and they're older and, Mm -hmm. and college kids are not going to, they're not going to be careful. I mean, it's against their, it's not aligned with their age group and like college is, the whole reasoning for college is the exact opposite of social distance. <laughs> like they want to go yeah. hang out. And that's part of the education is like being social and meeting people and talking to people. So the teachers I think want to hold up, but the administrators want those classes to be back in person. Cause they feel like if a lot of the students won't go, if it's online. So I'm, I'm, I feel like we're pretty safe as far as that's concerned. I, I, feel I like do too. I mean, I'm head of, head of painting at RCA and the um, yeah. college of art. So I'm definitely um, <laughs> in similar same position as you where I yeah. have to figure out uh, a solution. And I don't think the professors or even the students feel this that this is a, a feasible solution at no, all. Yeah. It goes I'm against less, the way we learn, really. It is. It does. And I think it's less of an issue for those of us that are on the ground. Right. The people that are making the bigger decisions are not on the ground with us. Totally. They're not in and that that's, room. They're not in the room at all. And yeah. we're not in their room. So the reality is, is that we can, we, we have to come together and, and make sure that this doesn't happen, definitely. Yeah. Uh, but it is something to be aware of. And it's hard to figure out what the best solution is because I know that, yeah, most of, of the people on staff are older. Yeah. I'm probably the youngest. 
um, or one of the youngest. And it's it's just I don't want to go in. Right. Immuno being immunocompromised or, <laughs> yeah. you know, like because people in perfect health have died. Also, yeah. it's not just people with pre-existing conditions. It covers a range of ages and and health health uh, concerns. Right. And I just don't think it's smart. So I don't really want to go in as well. Well, I think the other thing that sometimes we have humans do this in general, but I think as far as planning with like this as an example for teaching is we have this mindset that like this is going to be forever. And, you know, this is a horrible, you know, disease and, and it's and, you know, a virus that's really mm-hmm. affecting a lot of people. But I feel like we have to keep in mind that there will be a vaccine eventually, like the people yeah. will become like so it's better to be safer now and be more cautious and I think sometimes when you feel that way, other people get worried, like, well, it's going to be like this forever. Or, you know, we're never going to go back to the classroom. It's like, no, we will. I think it's just we, we need to play it safe in the short term. We need to be patient. We need yeah, to be patient. Exactly. No patience, patience when it comes to business. <laughs> no patience when it comes to change. Right. We, we're resistant to that. Humans, it seems like right now, are resistant to, to being forced to do something we don't want to do. Yeah. It should only be certain people or I shouldn't have to. It's just really selfish, um, selfish ideology to have. So. Totally. I was really um, happy that there was some backlash to a lot of these corporations who were making these Black Lives Matter and like, you know, we stand with you, yet our mm-hmm. boardrooms are totally white and male yep. and, you know, where our workforce is this and that, you know. So it's just like lip service of people. Yep. That was yep. part of the reason, too, that I have... I don't know, so many people were going online immediately and trying to sell work and, and donate it and be like, look what I'm doing here. I'm, I'm selling my work, which is, it, it's a good thing to want to do, but then to be advertising that in a way, you know what I mean? I feel yeah. like, you know, change is just something that lives with everyone, you know, and you have to do what's right and you have to push yourself. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, I think it really comes down with like, individual acts and then working towards like real change you know yeah and not every act that you do has to be public or has to be on social media i mean that's the thing i i I despise about social media and the current (laughs) you know the current uh current times of of everything being put on social media otherwise it didn't happen it's like the work behind the scenes as as is as important if not more important than whatever forward-facing work you're you know yeah. Uh, initiatives you're putting forth and and it's hard though but it's hard even because we become sucked into it i know i have where i was like well what if i do a fundraiser and then everyone was doing fundraisers and then i was just saying no to a lot of opportunities because i needed to rest right. i needed to prioritize resting which is has been damn near impossible because i have a, a job yeah. <laughs> at an institution that's you know top in the country and i just was like okay i can't do this because there's a demand or an ask from, um, you know, a lot of our black artists inboxes were blowing up because people wanted to support us suddenly. And it just felt incredibly tone deaf because in the same breath that you want to suddenly support us to try to save your own asses, you're actually asking us to do more work. And that's the biggest problem. Right. Yeah. yeah. You know, like find yeah. other ways to support us without having to to drain us of our emotional and physical you know, sanity and right. energy. It's like, yeah. why don't you just, you know, do something that, ha- ask us to do something that's maybe not as demanding or how about you put some, you know, in structural changes in place that will eventually, 
along the, you know, down the road support people of uh, black people specifically right. because people of color is another problematic term. Um, yeah. <laughs> trying to erase from my own memory, right? I'm talking right. about black people specifically yeah. because people of color under that umbrella aren't all systemically, um, you know, negatively impacted by the right. system. So, yeah. Um, and yeah, that was, I just kept saying no. Yeah. And I just focused on just resting, being with my with my partner, making work when I felt compelled to, and just playing video games. Like, how dare you? I, listen, <laughs> we all right. We right, all need the our. We all, <laughs> yeah, yeah. How dare you? That's what, that's what I was doing. And then I was like, okay, now I feel like I'm filled. You know, I'm I have enough strength and courage and energy, and I'm just gonna go out there and do some protesting and figure out what other solutions can happen in the industry that I'm a part of. Right. Not just in the art world, but in arts education. Um, yeah. Well, and if, out. if, if yeah. the world wasn't so backwards and all this stuff didn't exist, you know, people wouldn't have to spend all their time and energy just asking for basic equality and freedoms, which is ridiculous. It's the actual, absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> absolutely. Still to this day, you know, and like 2020, like just yesterday, these Confederate statues everywhere in that debate. It's just like we're there still. You know what I mean? Like, and yeah, it's crazy. And people are have the, the audacity to say, "I don't think these statues should be erased." And I'm like, I, I had someone in a meeting say that. And I was just like, "You got to be kidding me! You don't yeah. even see how problem is there a statue to Hitler anywhere?" <laughs> I know. Like, is I'm legitimately I, I haven't heard I of one, but I really don't think there is one. Right. So if that was up and you it was torn down, you prob it's not even up. That's that says a lot right there. Yeah. There is no like public million dollar initiative to to uh memorialize a monster. Right. From yeah, your culture. But yeah, we have to. There's all sorts of really sort of logical explanations for why this stuff shouldn't happen. And you mm-hmm. can say, you know, like like Confederate soldiers putting up statues to them is kind of ridiculous because they were fighting against the country and they wanted to keep slavery. And if, mm-hmm. You could say all that, but basically at the end of the day, the people who are complaining to keep those things up don't care about history. They don't care about any of that. Those things were mm-hmm. put up during Jim Crow. They're just racist and they want those things to stay yep. up. You know what I mean? So it, that's the most frustrating thing is you can have a really logical, you know, you know, now, I don't want to say debate, but sort of platform against this stuff. But it really just comes down to people being messed up. You know what I mean? Yep. Just having yeah. like stereotypes and biases. Yep, and exactly. Just one day, hopefully that stuff dies off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. <laughs> but there's going to be stupid people everywhere. <laughs> Always. And Always. biased people, you know. And that's, if it's not about race, it's going to be about money, or it's going to be about land, or it's going to be about mm-hmm. whatever, you know. There's so, always going to be something. There's always going to be something. But, but there are more of us that are fighting and that will win. Yeah. Than not. So I totally. try to hold on to that. That's the hope, right? That. that is the hope. And that's, that's, that's the team I want to be a part of. That's the community I want to be a part of. And I try to make sure that I am. Totally. In different ways. Yeah. So um, with the stuff you're working on now, I mean, you're you're basically working at home, right? So it's adjusted yeah. to that. I mean, I, mean, I have... have a bike now. Um, oh, so you're going to so get I, over there? So I can get to the studio um, and, yeah, figure out what... I think I'm just going to unroll some paper 
mm-hmm. on the wall, mounts on paper to the wall. I have a painting on my wall. It's huge. I don't know what I was doing when I left it. I was like, this isn't, I don't know if this is working. <laughs> <laughs> so when I go back, I'm probably going to take that painting down. Um, it's weird, right? Just, like taking that long of, a, I've never taken this long of a break break from the studio. And no, I left I with like five or six maybe more of like a group of work that I was working on and like thinking about it now, I'm like, I don't know if I'm still there in my yeah. mind. So different now, right? We've changed so much in a couple of months. So, I mean, I will say that the beauty of <laughs> not obviously without the emotion of, of all the deaths of thousands of people that have died, what has, what I have grown to appreciate and fight to appreciate every day is that I've been forced to sit still yeah, and to reflect and to slow down because I think I was literally going nonstop. I mean, I moved here in late August and every month uh, of the rest of the of 2019, I was in the States every month. I was flying in the States and every time I'd come back to London, I was sick because <laughs> oh. I was traveling too much. I wasn't resting yeah. enough. January, I was in, I think the last time I was in the States was um, in February, right before all this happened. And then my wife moved here, and yeah. then a month later we're in lockdown. And I think I'm 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 okay with. I mean, I was able. I had to say no or cancel or postpone a lot of events. Um, the only thing that's on my radar right now is fall of 2021. My next uh, New York gallery show. Yeah. Um, with. I think I can say this with Martos Gallery mm-hmm. <laughs> in the Lower East Side. And I'm just like, okay, that's plenty of time. I put together shows in months. So to have a year to really allow things to un- unroll and unravel slowly to, to play, yeah, I'm really excited about that. And to be able to have a income where I don't have to put all that pressure on my studio. Right. That The fact that my job, it's a lot of work. It, but it also generates income and supports my studio practice and it supports supports in many ways freedom. There's of, totally a freedom in that, right? Like I think it's completely it's almost a luxury because you know if if you have that stability in that sense, then you mm-hmm. can just go do your thing in the studio. I mean, a lot of people do do that anyways, but it just affords you a little bit of kind of like a feeling of a weight being off your shoulders in a sense. Yeah. I mean, but the reality is I was talking to a friend about this some time ago because a lot of my friends are in academia and they teach part-time or full-time. And we, we were saying that the very thing that allows us to be in the studio is also the very thing that takes us keeps us out of the studio, too. Right. So it is a catch-22, right? Because I do have the financial support to be in the studio. Don't always have the time because yeah. of the, the demands of, the, of my job. Um, so it's tricky. It's a tricky balance, and I think... I don't have a residency now. I'm, I'm was going to be going to a Civitelli um, mm-hmm. fellowship in August. Obviously, that's been pushed back to next year or the following year. Right. So I got a studio, and I'm just going to go and see what happens and just really focus on not putting too much pressure on myself and playing right. um, and just letting things unfold. And maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not painting. Right. You know? <laughs> Maybe I'm just drawing. That's okay, too. Totally. I mean, whatever you're compelled to do is what you're compelled to do, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, Can you give me your top three albums of all time? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) 
I knew there was going to be a hard question coming. Top three <laughs> albums. Top three albums of all time. Oh, that's so hard. Isn't okay. it? That's I hate questions like that because they're so difficult. But you, it, it, don't worry. This is going to be etched into a stone, <laughs> a podcast stone forever. <laughs> I will say um, Velvet Rope by okay. Janet Jackson. Well, you um, really like Janet. Oh, I'm a I'm obsessed Janet fan. Yeah. Um, let me think. I'm trying to think of a Prince album. Like, which Prince album? See, that's the difficulty about top three or top list of albums. Is it's album. There's a lot of artists who have a lot of great hits over time, but an album is a different thing. An album is a different thing. I'm torn with Prince between Purple Rain. Sorry. Wife's in the kitchen. (laughs) You're going to get this on the podcast. (laughs) I'm just going to (laughs) pause. Um... I'm torn between Purple Rain and the Rainbow Children with Prince. Yeah. But then Piano on a Microphone. Oof. I'm actually torn between those three. Jeez. And then third, third album. Oh, my goodness. This is a really hard question. Third top album. I'm, like, about to turn to her and be like, what's the, my, help me. No, no. No assistance. Help me. Not for me, no. She said Aretha Franklin. I'm like, not for me. I'm like looking. I'm looking over here at my records, and I'm just like, oh, Comfort Woman, Michelle and Diggiacello. Oh wow, I haven't heard that in a long time. Yeah, that one honestly for a solid, I want to say like two years from when it was released. After it was released, I literally was listening to it every time I was in the studio, and I think it came out not too long after I got out of grad school. Yeah. And it was just, I can't remember the timing, but I was obsessed. I mean, yeah, to the point where it has, excuse me, I know exactly when the CD scratches. That's how much I listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> I think I was, you know, listen to CDs then. <laughs> I was that way with Thriller because I had it on vinyl and I knew, oh. I knew that record. You know what I mean? Like it was just so important. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, those are the three. That's a hard one, though, because it can just like my top three artists, like it just changes all the time and it can yeah. go in any direction. So it's, it's just fun to hear at the moment. Yeah, what it is. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go with those three. I'll go with, yeah, Velvet Rope, Janet Jackson, Rainbow Children, Prince. I'm just going to put it out there. And Comfort Woman, Michelle and Diggiacello. No songs in the key of life up there? Is that? Is it? I mean, that's a that's up there. That's that's like one of those album albums. Like for me. Yeah. Thriller was huge when I was a kid. I mean, I mm-hmm. remember seeing that video and just being like, oh my God, this is amazing. You know, but as growing older, like Off the mm-hmm. Wall is definitely my favorite Michael Jackson mm-hmm. record. Yeah. But Thriller as a record is like front to back. That's like an album. You know what I mean? Yeah. Songs yeah. in the Key of Life is an album. It is. And it's a, I mean, that's a, that's a fourth. I would say that's a close fourth. I mean, that's close to third. You know, it's also for me, I mean, it's what you were saying, what we were talking about earlier. It's a nost- it's nostalgia, too. Yeah, it's that, not just, like, in. the albums. That has a huge weight. Velvet Rope was, like, 
the album that told me I could be queer, I could be black, and I was I was still like those feelings are valid, yeah, and and that's accepted and that's okay, right? And that was like high school, yeah. And I mean, Rainbow Children doesn't have as much nostalgia around it. I think not in terms of what was going on in my life, but more so the album itself was like the first time I was listening to to sort of an obscure it felt really obscure and strange yeah. but it i couldn't turn it off i just couldn't um and then comfort woman yeah i mean that's just the artistry of comfort woman musically is just incredible it does it did transport me um to a different place different yeah. state of being state of mind state of being so are you yeah. a, are you an alice coltrane fan i you know i'm becoming one more so now, um, <clears throat> excuse me, than I think I was before. I'm a little late to Alice Coltrane. I think I have a John Coltrane love to death. Alice Coltrane, newer, newer fan. Yeah. And I think that's honestly because of my because of my partner. Yeah, it's. So I'm, it is. I'm still. I can't say I don't like her. I dis. I listen to her, but not as much as I. I think I will start to. I'm starting to. She's starting to grow on me. Yeah. <laughs> More. There's a record with Rashawn Roland Kirk that she did that I think is one of the most beautiful records. I'll mm. send you. The, I'll send you the link. Okay, thank you. I, yeah. It's just transformative. I think. I just in the same way, you know, a lot of Coltrane's exploratory stuff. Was, mm-hmm. You know, like the Love Supreme live record was so amazing. And, yeah. You know, it takes you somewhere else. I think a lot of mm-hmm. her stuff does that. I've been getting into that her stuff yeah. more and more recently. Yeah, I didn't even mention any hip hop albums, but you know, we won't. That's a whole nother. Or jazz, like you'd have to ask me that question per genre. Genre. Top three hip hop records. <laughs> we got time. We got like a couple more minutes. Oh right? man, mm-hmm. top three hip. Honestly, nineties has got to be it, right? It's the nineties. So enter the woo. Oh yeah. Thirty six chambers. Yeah, thirty six chambers. Like oh geez, that album was amazing. See, that's um, a good record, but and I love Wu Tang, and I probably like Old Dirty Bastards record more, just for what it is. But I don't. Yeah. I wouldn't put that. It's a great. You want to put that at the top? No. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's not number one. It's one. It's in the top three. Yeah. I would say the um, speaker box of love below. I love that album. That might be number one for me. Yeah. But Atlians is also really good. Yeah. Um, so that's two. Geez, the third one. Man. I gotta go with Missy. Oh really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which one? I which go one? With... I'm not a. I don't know her records as much as her songs. Yeah. Which one? I think. You know, it's funny. Is like I can see the cover. She's wearing her her pink Kangol hat, and I think she's sitting on a boombox. And I can't remember the name of the actual album right now, but I can I'm visual. So I can I can visualize yeah, the yeah. cover. Like what, man. You know what was good though? Diggable Planets. That's on my top three. That's the top one. Blowout Comb for me. Blowout even, Comb was even like, though the first one was amazing. Blowout Comb is a great, great that's overlooked one that, record. It really is, and I definitely had to buy a new CD because that one just went through it. Yeah. But Blowout Comb is a is up there. I'd say. I think that's probably up there. I think Missy comes into fourth for me, and Blowout Comb <laughs> would be like second. 
So yeah, speaker box one, blowout comb two, yeah, and three, um, Wu-Tang. That's a good list. I've got, not that you're asking, I've got <laughs> no, takes, I'm a, curious. takes a Nation of Millions is number one for sure. And then nice. I've got Midnight Marauders. Yeah. Oh, and how could I forget about Tribe? Oh. Then I've got Blowout Comb. Yeah. That's a, you know what? And Three Feet Behind Rising's up there too for me. But I yeah. grew up, that was like, you know, like, you know, Gangstar and, and Tribe and Quest. And like that mm-hmm. stuff was the stuff I grew up on. Yeah, same, because we're about the same age. The Midnight Marauders, ooh, you know, they might have to beat out Wu-Tang, actually. I, I love Wu-Tang. And when, <laughs> when Wu-Tang's second record came out, I remember at midnight being in line to get that thing. And so, <laughs> Were you in front of, like, Tara Records or something? <laughs> no, this was when I was in college. It was, like, the local record shop or whatever. Gotcha. But, uh, yeah, it was, you know, Wu-Tang's great. But, yeah, I don't know, Tribe Called Quest was... I remember getting that first cassette and having my parents drive me to a mall to buy that first the <laughs> people's instinctive travels you know yeah it's so good nothing That's like great. it great i need to re- revisit those albums i haven't listened to them in their entirety in a while i listened to wu-tang the other day when i was um going for a run like last week and i was like oh man i forgot how good this album is <laughs> That's a great, you know what it is with wu-tang too is there's so many splinter records that are so good like the jizzas yeah. and raekwons and and ODB, like those are really good records. So it's almost mm-hmm. like they were, it was like an embarrassment of riches with them. Yeah, <laughs> it was. Yeah. Oh, nostalgia. Yep, yeah. Got me thinking back. Oh boy. Memory lane. That's great. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, looking towards the future. So you have that potential show coming up next year that you're going to. Yeah, I have in the fall. We haven't put a date on it, but yeah, it's most likely going to be fall 2021. Um, with uh, Marto's Gallery. And, I mean, I had a bunch of shows that were postponed. Um, I don't know if uh, I have a installation, site-specific installation at the Courier Museum. Not sure when that's coming up. We did push it from July. It's supposed to be this July. Uh, this month, actually, because it is pretty much July already. Yeah. Um, <laughs> or next week. This has been like a couple of weeks at uh, the Courier Museum in New Hampshire, in Portsmouth, Um and that's pushed back to the fall, but I'm not sure it might be pushed back even further. And then I had a show that's been postponed that was going to happen at Brick. Um, but the only thing that's in stone right now is, is the fall uh, 2021 with Martos Gallery. So everything else is... It's up be- in the air, right? TBD, yeah, yeah, to be decided. And I'm, I'm okay with it. I'm okay with things slowing down. Um, I just I think I need to recalibrate and need to like let things go. Yeah. Be loose in the studio right now. And yeah, the drawings, the drawings will tell me what to do. I'll let them. They need some time to breathe. <laughs> Sounds like a good uh show title. The drawings oh. told me what to do. The drawings <laughs> told me what to do. <laughs> Yeah, I can hide behind uh, not sounding crazy because I'm an artist, right? <laughs> isn't, that what we, isn't that what we do all the time? All the time. <laughs> I yep. spend all my time in the room making pictures. <laughs> yeah. I'm an artist. And talking to myself. <laughs> yeah. That's what we do. Well, mm-hmm. thanks so much for taking all the time out. Thank you, Brian. It was great to talk to you. It was great to talk Appreciate to you. Appreciate it.
Vision is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find out more about the podcast online on the website, soundofvisionpodcast.com. You can support the podcast by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. That really helps. And uh, spread the word, share a post, tell someone about it. That's the best way to spread the word. Many thanks to all you listeners. Thanks to all the messages. I don't talk about it all the time, but I get a steady stream of really great messages from people who um, are supportive of the podcast and appreciate it. So I appreciate you sending in those comments. They definitely help me uh, energy-wise keeping up with doing all these talks. I got plenty more coming, a lot more remote ones because we're not getting out anytime soon. So everyone stay safe, be responsible, make some art indoors, and hopefully we can all get out there soon. Thanks to Evermarion for the music. Thanks to Michael Levitt for the intro. And thanks to Golden Artist Colors for their long-withstanding sponsorship of the podcast. And extra special thanks to Alexandria for taking out the time from London to talk to me. Check out her work. She's on Instagram. Check out her website. Thanks to you.